Um, good morning. I am, um, I'm glad to be here. Uh, if you don't know, I generally teach at our Tiger congregation, and I am one of the few uh, pastors that gets a little bit of a picture of all the congregations together. Um, I kind of work um, with Rick and other other the other pastors of other congregations, and I, I'm one of the few people that kind of get around a little bit, although it's not as much as I would like, which is why next week I just want to echo what Rick had announced about our time together at PSU in the new arena there next week. Um, it's great to, it would be great for you to get a picture of what God's doing and what you're a part of. Um, my friend, um, if you don't know uh, about him, my, my friend Francis Chan will be here and uh, will teach because he's st- pretty strategic in the launching of Colossae when I moved up here in 2008 to start. And uh, I think it'll be a great time. So hopefully you can be there. Doors open at 10, and then we'll start at 10.30. And bring a lunch. Don't forget that. Uh, picnic a little bit. Pack a lunch and come. And afterwards, there'll be tables around and everything. So anyways, it'd be, it'd give you a good picture of what some of what's going on. So um, as you listen to the scriptures being read this morning, again, it kind of sounds like a little bit about like Proverbs does if you at least to me. And today, I'm going to launch it here, and we'll launch it in Tigard as well uh, soon, uh, a study in the book of James. The book of James is, um, I think, uh, timely for our church and for our social context. I think uh, it's true of all of the Bible, but um, James particularly, I think, speaks to our time today, and I think can guide us to what it means to actually be a faithful presence in our social context today. Uh, I think uh, I say that because of a few things. One is, is our, our world is pretty isolated. And I don't just mean like suburban context. Everybody drives into their driveway, upload, you know, lifts up the garage door and pulls in and doesn't talk to their neighbors. Uh, I'm not really talking about that, although some of that might be true. I'm talking about individually we're very isolated. If you just think about this um, in a couple of ways, um, for instance, anybody, I'm sure you have, you've gone to Amazon or Best Buy website, you've checked out something, have not bought it, and then you go to a different website, maybe it's your Facebook account or your Instagram or maybe your email, and all of a sudden you get advertisements for what you searched. Um, marketing is at its absolute peak. What happens with that is it isolates you. What you end up seeing online is everything you're already interested in or already agree with. And what that does is, is it creates an echo chamber for your life. All you see, all you hear are those things. And so if you take people on polar opposites of the political spectrum or religious spectrum, all of their searches, they actually can search for the same thing but see completely different things. It creates an echo chamber culture that is very isolated. This is unique. Uh, you add to that, you add to this, we live in a divided culture now. We're so isolated, we don't seek understanding, we have no empathy, we just build a fence, pick a side, gather with people on our side of the fence, and then bash the other people on the other side, and we feel great about our side. Sound familiar? It's divided. It's a divided culture and a divided context. If we think about it, um, 
this way, when that setting is there, rhetoric is more important than truth. The first voice and the loudest voice wins. When you come to this context now, whereas if there's one word that I would use to describe our social context, it would be the word anxious. We have an anxious society that creates anxiety, and if we as the church cannot differentiate, we contribute to it rather than bringing a faithful, restful, peaceful presence that I think God would call us to. And the book of James will help us. Because this context creates um, a very interesting culture to be a Christian today. And if you think about it, the church has kind of lost its location and identity in the context of our society. Just think about it this way. Um, People used to um, always get married and always do their funerals in a church building. Today, it's rare for either. It may not be in a Christian world, but in the world, it's very rare. The church, we have lost our location in society. And this has caused the church to ask all kinds of questions like, what is the church? Is it really about this? Is it really about that? That just shows that we don't even know who we are. So you take all this social context and you take the fact that we've lost our sense of identity and belonging in the world and we're left isolated and wondering, how in the world do I live in this life faithfully as a Christian? I have this faith. I have this personal faith. Now, how do I live it out and how do I express who I am and how do I live with peace and rest and contentment and joy and all these kinds of things? Um, And so we can talk about history and how that's looked throughout history. But the question is, is what does it look like today for you, for me, in our context, in my neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? What does that look like? And I want to suggest to you that it might just be very simple. Uh, We can make it complex, but I think it might just be simple, and that would be this, that we actually understand what it means to have an integrated life where everything in our lives are intertwined in a very unique and unified way, and all of it centers on Jesus. Now, what does that look like? Well, I think James can help us. That's why we've called this series An Integrated Life, study through the book of James. I don't think it's complex. The world can make it complex, and we can overthink it. I don't think it's that complex. And I think James could uniquely speak to this time in our culture and in our setting. Now, um, here's the thing about James. The book of James won't necessarily challenge you intellectually, but it will challenge your life. And the reason why it challenges your life is because it exposes major areas of our lives that tend to be disintegrated. Maybe a a good way to think about this larger concept is um, the way we think about Mother Teresa. Um, if you think of just think about how you think about Mother Teresa, I just spent some time with my friend who's a neurosurgeon, and I always ask him like, "What's the most fascinating thing you're learning about the brain?" You know, because I'm I have a doctorate too, but mine's not nearly as interesting as his is. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating. And yesterday, just yesterday, he says, he says, "You know, the brain has decided to investigate itself." I was like, "Whoa, that was deep." Uh, I was like, "That's fascinating. No other organ in your body does that." So anyways, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Here's, so think about, th- this is what, what it means. Think about w- how you think about 
Mother Teresa. Chances are you value her life and what she did. You value her character. You value the virtue. You value the humility. But here's the thing. Chances also are you don't want to actually live her life. You value all that she has, and you don't want to actually live it out. What is that separation? What is that within us that causes that? There's this saying that says, um, uh, everybody wants sausage, but nobody wants to see how it's made. You ever, you ever hear that? It's this idea that I want the outcomes, but I don't actually want to see and experience how it's made. What James is going to do is he's going to challenge our lives because he says, yeah, it's all integrated. You don't get the product without the process. And so he's going to bring wisdom into understanding kind of what this process looks like and how we kind of work towards an integrated life. And he's going to do this by pointing out four areas of our lives, major areas at least, that are, tend to be disintegrated, which is where the challenge comes in. Let me walk you through each of these kind of four areas. The first one is our circumstances. The circumstances, um, James is going to have a unique perspective on this, and he's going to talk about how to navigate ones that are less than perfect, which is helpful to us because we experience that. But he's going to help us understand it from a different perspective with the wisdom in it. And he's, gonna, and he's not speaking just from theory. He's actually speaking from wisdom because of his experience in Jerusalem, which I'll explain a little bit about that. But it, this is important because if we don't understand this, we don't bring the hope to a broken world the way that we ought to. And so James is going to help us live out our faith in a integrated way in today's world in that way. The second area, which is directly connected, is this idea of wisdom. James is kind of seen as a New Testament wisdom literature. As you heard the reading this morning, again, it kind of feels like Proverbs a little bit. But this wisdom will contrast with anxiety, and here's how. We'll talk a little bit about it today. Anxiety will lead you to distrust God. Wisdom, as you'll see this morning, leads you to trust God and trust that He's good. So that's the wisdom He's bringing, and even in the midst of the circumstances. The third area that you're going to see really fleshed out is this idea of hospitality. And he's going to break down. He's going to show you your relational bias. And believe me, you have it. We all have it. But he's going to confront it. It tends to be the way that we handle relationships and offer relationship and give community, not just consume it, is disintegrated. And this is where the challenge comes from. The, the fourth and final area um, that he's going to talk about is speech. In a world that's so divided, James is going to say, here's what an integrated life looks like and how you speak about people that are other than yourself and specifically those that are different. All of these are important in a world where it's divided and isolated. That's why I walk through those cultural kind of realities. I think the book of James is going to really help us in this polarized world and how to be who God's called us to be. So the book of James, as we'll walk, begin to walk through this morning, is very interesting flow. What you'll see is, is in chapter 1, all four of these will be highlighted and summarized. And then in chapters 2 through 5, 
it'll break it down in a number of different ways. And you'll see these themes repeated throughout the rest of the book. But chapter 1 gives you an overarching kind of summary and, uh, of each of these areas, which we'll kind of talk about today. And so we'll just start. Let's look at James chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. You heard it read this morning. But we can, um, actually, I'll just read with you from the screen. Here's chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what he says. Begins it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So let's, let's look at this for a second. He says he's James. Um, there's three guys named James in the New Testament, which makes this really confusing sometimes. You're like, what's James is talking about? There's two kind of disciples on the inner circle of Jesus, um, son of uh, Zebedee and son of Alphaeus, neither of which is this James. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. I say half-brother because Jesus kind of only had a human mom. James was the byproduct of, or the byproduct, is that what it was? <laughs> the offspring of um, both Mary and Joseph. But James, this James, grew up with Jesus. In fact, during his childhood, he was probably referred to as Jacob, but um, here he's become James. And so we, we look at this and we hear from James in this setting. Now, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem which was a very large church. It was a mega church, basically. But he led this church in the midst of great poverty and great persecution, which is really important to understand for what he's going to write. James is very esteemed. Um, You could see him as being part of the original disciples that commissioned out and approved the Apostle Paul to move out as well as part of God's voice in the world. And so James is, uh, you can read about that in Galatians 1 and 2. But so James is very esteemed. He's, uh, by the way he's led the church in Jerusalem, he's very uh, admired and respected. And here he is offering wisdom to people, the 12 tribes, Jewish people, in the dispersion. What in the world is he talking about? Well, it's pretty simple. He, he's leading in times of poverty and persecution, which led to the Jews from Jerusalem being dispersed. They're called diaspora Jews for this reason. So what happened is, is some Jews, because of their poverty, moved to another city for a better life, for a job and seeking welfare for their children and all those kinds of things. Others Jews, and the majority of them, were driven out because of persecution. So they sought refuge in other cities. You know most of these cities. They're cities like Colossae and Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica. All of these cities that just Jews dispersed to, and you probably heard of it if you've been around the Bible a little bit, because these are the people that Paul started with when he moved to a city to start a church. So James is writing this kind of not to one person or one context, but this overarching people of God, all in different countries, actually, not just different cities, different countries of what does it look like to be integrated in your life and faith where you live today, which is why, again, I think it's really important for us. So this general wisdom, we're going to take it for us today. So let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verse verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's actually multicolored trials. 
is the idea. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Be in it. Let it happen. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what is James saying, just general wisdom here? He's going to hit these ideas of circumstances. Here's the first box. What it, overall, he's saying this, that there's hope in imperfect circumstances and struggle and trial and suffering. There's hope. Let it happen. Don't fight it. Be in it. There's hope. What's the hope? He says a perfect and complete life. Well, what does that mean? Well, our tendency is to think, wow, I'll be perfect in my conduct and my attitudes and my heart. Good luck. That's not actually what he's talking about. It's a perfectly integrated life is what the hope is. You see, here, here's the thing about suffering. Um, we avoid it obvious, for obvious reasons. But suffering is like the ultimate equalizer. Think about it. Like it has its way of bringing everything together in your life. Everything is integrated. This morning, our elders in Tiger just prayed for a man who has an incurable lung disease that will kill him if God doesn't do something miraculous. We just anointed him this morning and prayed for him. You know what happens in suffering? There's full integration. Everything stops. And it's actually scary. It's actually frightening. It's actually frustrating, but it's also freeing. Because what trials and suffering can bring is this um, aligned priorities and focused attention in a way that integrates everything. What James is saying, don't avoid trial. Don't avoid suffering. It's one of our problems in the church today. We don't have a theology for suffering. We avoid it at all costs. But what it can do is it brings everything together. There's hope in it. We, um, somebody uh, said, we always want answers without doubt. And we always want conclusions without questions. Like that, we always want spiritual maturity without trial. It just doesn't happen. So recently... Um, we just went through a really hard time with my oldest daughter, Kara. She's 13. We went through a medical scare with her. She went from, Daddy, my eye hurts, to us, uh, I just going, yeah, baby, I don't know, man. My tooth hurts too. You know what I mean? Like, we'll just give it a couple days. I'm like, did you bump it? No. And it's like, oh. We give it a couple days, and all of a sudden, she's starting to hurt more when she's blinking. So we take her to go get it checked out, and it quickly escalates. <laughs> They go to, we go to the, op, the pediatrician, then the optometrist, and then the ophthalmologist, and then a neuro-ophthalmologist, and they say, we need to get an MRI. We know she has braces. Chances are the images won't come out clear, but we've we got to give it a try. And so we're like, okay. Two hours later, we get a call, and they ask us to come in two hours later. And we're going, on one hand, thank you for the attention, and second hand, why? So I take her in for the MRI, and I watch her little body go in, and um, 13 years old, she's kind of going, what is going on with me? You know, there's been two days now, and doctors are doing this stuff, and the images don't come out clear, so they 
kind of fast track her to OHSU. She has this ultrasound on her eyeball, and they discover, and they compare it, and they discover her optic nerve, which is the nerve that connects your eyeball to your brain, on the left side was twice the size as the one on the right side, which is very abnormal. So they have, it's like all this, all kinds of questions, and there could be all kinds of reasons for this. So they order um, a number of tests, blood tests, and all these kinds of things, and then order a spinal tap. So I'm with my daughter at the spinal tap, and uh, which is a fascinating and surreal experience. Um, and they discover that she has what's called intracranial hypertension. So there's a bunch of pressure around her brain. So I called my friend Neil, who is a neurosurgeon. I go, okay, Neil, here's the deal. Um, the doctors don't tell me anything. And I get it. But what are they looking for? And he explains to me, he says, well, Chuck, um, here's the thing. With one side, usually when you have intracranial hypertension, it's going to affect both optic nerves. The fact that it's only affecting one uh, is of concern because they're they're concerned about, they're probably saying something like, he says, uh, structural blockage. And I go, yeah, they keep mentioning that, but that's just a tumor, right? He goes, that's exactly right. Thanks for being honest. So we go through, and my daughter has to get her braces off to get another MRI, and they're going around. Well, we uh, come to this find, find out, thankfully, that she didn't have a tumor. So they changed the diagnosis to idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Idiopathic means this. Man, we don't know. We don't know what happened. Well, they relieved, they took a bunch of uh, fluid out of my daughter's back. But here's the thing. In the midst of all this uh, 10-day period, probably 12-day period, my daughter, I'm carrying her to the bathroom. She's in such bad shape. Um, in the midst of this, we're having a couple conversations, two conversations. The first conversation I'm constantly having with her is this. Maybe you, the sooner you realize that you're not in control of your life, the better you're going to be. I'm having that conversation with her multiple times. The second conversation I'm having with her is this. God promises you something in this, and that is that he's with you. Do you, do you see like the youth staff gathering and one night at Marcus's house to pray for you? Do you see all these people kind of praying and bringing you a treat and the flowers and us meals? Yeah, that's one of the ways God says, I'm with you. So I'm having that conversation with her. And what's interesting is, is through this time of suffering um, and trial, I actually think it's stuck. I think those two things embedded in my daughter in ways that she would have otherwise missed without the trial. It's just how life works. And so James is saying, don't avoid it. Be in it. There's hope in this. The hope is, is that now my daughter is actually putting pieces together. She's felt the church. She's actually now talking to me about being baptized. I asked her why. Because we don't talk about that much because I want to be careful. I've baptized way too many college students that were baptized as junior hires. And they said it wasn't their thought. So it doesn't mean that, you know, an eight-year-old can't get baptized, surely. Um, but I'm just careful. 
She said, I said, what is it that got you to think about it? She says, well, Dad, when I was sick, I, I realized that God is with me. I go, yeah? She goes, yeah, and I, I just don't want to be without him. I go, so what is baptism? These are her words. It's my way of saying I just always want to be with God. It's like, good for you, baby, right? Let's keep talking. I, maybe, but I don't know that we would have gotten to that point without this trial and without the scare. And so James in wisdom is just saying, look, there's hope that would otherwise be missed. That's what wisdom talks about. And that's what James talks about next. Verse 5, here's what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Here's basically what's going on. If anxiety will lead you to mistrusting God, wisdom is going to lead you to trusting God. That's what it does. And what he's saying is, is when you ask for wisdom, you're going to ask believing that God's going to give it to you because why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he give you his wisdom and his mindset and his thinking? You have to be kind of nuts to think that he wouldn't give it to you. You have to ask for it. But when you ask for it, you ask believing. Because if you don't, if you're not believing that, you're, you're just all over the place. You're all over the map. What, what it does is, is it takes wisdom comes from a part of our mind that takes a, a, a moment that, to think more deeply than your feelings. That's what wisdom brings. It grounds you. And so why wouldn't God ask for that? We ask for it. Because when's us, wisdom reminds us of one thing, and here's what I want to get to this morning to make sure we understand this. It gets you to a place where you understand what defines you. Wisdom will always lead you to trusting that God is good, that he has your best interest in mind, and his deepest desire is your deepest happiness. In other words, wisdom leads you to the place where you understand that you are nothing more than loved. And that is sustainable. Now, let me explain to you why I, f- I want my daughters to feel powerless. I have three daughters, if you don't uh, know. And that might sound really weird in our culture where everything's about strong women. And I agree with a lot of that. Um, but I actually want my daughters to feel powerless, and here's why. Um, I feel power, we feel power, when deep down I know that I'm working really hard to earn something. I deserve it. I worked for it. I deserve it. This is why I love the idea of grace but I just want to feel like I earned it. Deep down, that gives me a sense of power. This is why we don't want to, we like to help other people and we don't want to ask for help. Because when I help other people, I have a sense of power and control. When I have to ask for help, I feel powerless. This is why we have a hard time with God's grace and his love. Because of this, you didn't deserve it. You just have to get to a place where you accept the fact that you are accepted. And you did nothing for it. It's powerless. This is where wisdom leads you. That you trust God. Anxiety will lead you to seeking control. 
wisdom, although initially it makes you feel powerless, it actually allows you to just accept the fact that you are loved. And so wisdom, if you ask for it, you have to believe God's going to give it to you because it restores who we are. Now, God's wisdom leads to thinking differently about all sorts of things, even social and economic systems, which is another highlight of what's going to be happening. Verse 9 says this, Let the lowly brother, the poor, boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James in his wisdom, and he'll unpack this later, but is throwing out this idea that there's social divide, there's socioeconomic division, and polarized kind of thinking in this. And what James is saying is that in this relationship between poverty and wealth, here's the bottom line, wealth doesn't go with you when you die. This speaks to the pursuit. The man will fit away, fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You ever hear of a bucket list? What's a bucket list? A bucket list is something that I put together because I want to do all these things before I die. Great. God's designed life to enjoy. But at its core, if we're not careful, what that is is that I actually think there's nothing better after I die. And what he's saying is there's something lost in this pursuit. What's lost? Well, he says it. The rich man fades away. The person who you actually are is lost in that pursuit. Jesus says it this way, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit himself? See, what he's saying is in the midst of your circumstances, wisdom guides you to the fact that you're loved, that you trust God. And so there's, you have to recognize that there's danger in these pursuits that you have on this earth. And it's actually damaging to yourself. In fact, um, uh, and he's saying this disintegrated world that you live in, this is really important. In fact, our world's so disintegrated that we actually blame God for the breakdown. Here's what he says, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, integrated life, perfect life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is disintegrated living. You're blaming God for the brokenness in your own life, for the brokenness in the world, and all these kinds of things. Then desire, within the human beings, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Keep reading verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, those that are loved. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God is good. Wisdom leads you to understanding that. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind first fruits of his creatures. 
Now, here, here's, here's the bottom line. He's talking about blaming God for mistakes, whether they're yours or someone else's. He says, that's, that's ridiculous. God's good. This is where wisdom leads you to. Not anxiety, wisdom. And so you, you make it through your, um, your, your trials because it's funny how easy it is to blame God for all the evil and bad in our life. But yet even the simplest understanding of the biblical story says that that question's crazy. You can't even get past page three and think that, that it's God's problem. No, we've walked away from his design. He said, no, so wisdom, this wisdom literature goes to, no, you have to understand God's good. In verse 18, this last verse pushes us. God willed of his own will, God's will, he brought us forth, you and I here today in our culture, our social context, by the word of truth that we should be a kind first fruits of his creatures. What is this talking about? Well, in wrapping all this up, what this means is, is that you're on the front lines. And as disintegrated as life can be through circumstances and through wisdom, through how you handle relationships, how God integrates your life together, you can now and you are called to be the representative of God in this culture. So you actually are, if you're a Christian, gets you to this place. Because the, the Bible doesn't tell you a history of like ideas it gives you a history of people of which you are now a part of. You are a part of that. And so what does it look like to be God's faithful presence in today? Well, James just gives us this overarching kind of summary next week, cover the rest of chapter 1 that kind of breaks it down, kind of focuses a little bit more on hospitality. But in chapter 1, he says, here's, here's the bigger picture. Here's the summaries. That's a lot that we just got. But he'll unpack it in chapters 2 through 5. We'll be able to break it down a little bit more. And these things, these four areas have to be integrated if we're going to join God's mission of reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. That's the way it works. So I think this will be a great series. Now, here, here's what I like to do. Um, I want to kind of just end with a re- an exercise before we go into communion and some worship through singing. Um, I don't want it to be too weird. I, I'm not trying to make it weird. Um, but I do, I do want to ask you to... Um, Close your eyes for just a moment. If you have a Bible, just close it. And then close your eyes. And I just want to help guide your thoughts for just, uh, just a moment. And I, uh, I do this practice at least, well, at least three times a week, if not six or seven. But every morning I wake up, I sit in this chair in my living room, and I, uh, most mornings at least, and I, and I, I do this. It, it looks different the more you do it, but let me just walk you through it. If you just sit there with your eyes closed, um, I want you to visualize yourself and God actually just looking at you. And as you kind of visualize God looking at you, I want you to notice what you're feeling. More importantly, I want you to think of one word to answer this question. 
God's looking at you, what does he feel? Just, just one word. What does he feel toward you? Now, for just a moment, just, just look at me for a second. I don't know what word came to your mind. Maybe a few. But let me just say this. Um, if you answered that question, how does God feel about me? If you answered that question with anything but the word love, with all due respect, you are wrong. You are wrong. I think many times we can answer that question with like shame or anger or all kinds of things. Anything but love, you are wrong. And this is what motivates you towards an integrated life. This is what sustains you through trial, suffering. This is what leads you to wanting and asking for wisdom. This is what leads you to offering relationship. All four of these areas. And it's that that I want to lead you to the tables with. And we want to sing about. As you take this, what you're doing is you're, you're taking the bread and the cup. What is Jesus doing? It's actually, it's this perfect picture of an integrated life that we benefit from. And so I want to pray for us as we go into this time. The offering boxes are on the tables. If you came to give and participate in the ministry here financially in that way, you can give in the boxes, but we'll pray. And then when you feel comfortable and ready, I want to invite you to the tables and receive grace, nothing of which you feel like you deserve. It's actually a posture of powerlessness. Um, accept it. Let me pray for you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I were so grateful for your goodness, for your love. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are not only with us, but you're guiding us and directing us that you point us to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for modeling the perfect life. It wasn't disintegrated at all. It was pure. It was perfect. You perfectly modeled the love of God for us. And so right now we remember you, your selflessness, your self-giving nature. Father, as we sing, as we maybe give, as we take these elements, we, we do this in the name of Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, be with us. Meet us. Speak to us.